chapter 1, <clears throat> gives us, we're going to look at 10 spiritual blessings that come to us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. There's more than 10, folks, but I only had room for 10, <clears throat> the 10 basic ones. You're going to be surprised when you see how many things that God has done for us that trusted Christ as, as our Savior. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, and ask for God's blessing on that. Father, we thank you for your word and for the great blessings and promises that you have given us in your word. And Father, we know that one thing you can't do is break your promises. You can't lie to us. It's, it's outside of your personality, <clears throat> outside of your ability to lie and to, and to break promises. And you have made many great, wonderful promises. We're going to look at 10 of them tonight, Lord. And we pray that as we look at them, that you would help us to have a greater appreciation for what you have done for us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 4 can be somewhat controversial. Look what it says in verse 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. According as he hath chosen us. By the way, go to Ephesians. I'm sorry. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 so you can follow along with us and me. I keep forgetting I don't pass out outlines like I do in my Sunday school class, so you have to look to, your, to the scriptures to get to follow along as I read. Nothing wrong with that, right? Word of God. Verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated, predestinated us, unto the, the adoption of the children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, don't get all mixed up and don't get all worried about words like predestination and chosen and according to his will. Those are the, the word predestination is probably the word that Calvinists like to hang their hat on the most. Uh, they teach that God chose before the foundation of the world, who will be saved and who won't be saved. And that's not the God that I know. And there are too many verses in the Bible that would be contrary to that. So what is predestination? Predestination is based on God's foreknowledge. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many. To foreknow means to know beforehand. I like the saying, did it ever occur to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Has, has anything ever happened in this world that surprised God? Does God know the end from the beginning? Does God foreknow who will trust him as Savior and who will reject him? Yes. And those are the ones that he predestinates. Predestination is based on God's will. We talked about this verse this morning. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Back in Ephesians 1, 5, it says, the adoption of, to Jesus, by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. What is the good pleasure of his will? that none should perish, and that all should come to repentance. Now, the, the, 
Calvinists will say, well, if you believe that, then that means that, that God can accomplish his will. If, it's, if, it's not that, if he's not willing that any should perish, and some will perish, right? Is everybody going to go to heaven? No. So they say, well, then God's not able to accomplish his will. But they forget that God has chosen, and it, it, his, it is his will, to give us free will. God does not want puppets. God does not want to force his salvation on us. God has supplied everything we need to be saved, but he has given us the free will to either accept it or reject it. He's not willing that any should reject it, but he doesn't force them not to reject it. He wants us to choose him and to trust in him because we believe and because we love him. So don't worry about predestination. That word comes up once in a while in the Bible, but there's so many other verses that, sh that show us that God has given us everything we need. Matter of fact, um, Wednesday night I'm going to talk about uh, a place in the Bible that talks about God doing everything that he possibly could do, and yet we still have, he still gets sour grapes. We're going to look at sour grapes Wednesday night. Well, secondly, not only has he predestinated us, but he adopted us. Verse 5 says, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Adopted us from the family of the devil to the family of God. From the family of the world and the worldliness to the family of God. We, are, we belong to the family of God now. And because of that, we can call God Abba. Abba means daddy. Hi, daddy. You're my father. It says, for you, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That means we're not under the law anymore. We're not under the spirit of bondage unto fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's in um, Romans 8.15. Can you imagine we can call God daddy? <coughs> Abba means daddy. And, I, and that's not being disrespectful. God wants us to call him Abba. He's our father. And he adopted us, okay? He predestinated us. He adopted us. He took us into his family. Thirdly, he accepted us. Verse 6 in, Roman, in um, Ephesians 1 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. We are accepted in the beloved because he loves us. First John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And why can we be called the sons of God? Isn't there a barrier between God and us? Isn't there a barrier of sin between God and us? So why can, how can he call us the sons of God? Because, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. That barrier of sin has been torn away when we trust Christ as our Savior. And he, he can accept us. Remember what we said about justification? When God looks, us up, it's, looks at us, it's just as if I had not sinned. When God looks at us, he doesn't look at our sin, even though we still have sin. 
Listen, when, we're, when we trust Christ as our Savior, we are justified. To be justified means buried in the deep blue sea, all our sins. As far as the, the east is from the west. I always say west is from the west. The east is from the west because his son paid for our sins. Isn't that a tremendous thought? Where would we be if we had to pay for our own sins? Wow. I wouldn't want to be in that boat. But there will be some that have to pay for their own sins, those that reject Christ. Fourthly, he redeemed us in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption means to deliver by paying the price. Uh, that reminds me of a word, the word ransom. Do we, do we all know what ransom is? When somebody is kidnapped, they take, they take a, some, someone's child or they kidnap a, a woman or they kidnap somebody. And then they, this usually it's somebody that, that comes from a, a family that has money. And then they send a message saying, if you want your loved one back, you have to pay me a ransom and then I'll let them go. That reminds me of Charles Lindbergh, the, the, probably the most famous kidnapping of all time. Charles Lindbergh, his little son, was kidnapped. And the demand was given to Charles Lindbergh, give us $20,000 and we'll give you your son back. So Charles Lindbergh sent them, according to the steps that they said, $20,000. Did he get his son back? No. They still killed him. They still killed that little boy. I think he was four years old, very young. Is God going to do that to us? The ransom that was paid will never be rejected. God's not going to say, well, my son paid the ransom, but that's not enough. That's not enough to cover for your sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For as much as ye know, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation or manner of living, received by the tradition of your fathers, the law, but with what? What? The precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. All those lambs that, that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, they had to be spotless. They had to be perfect. They couldn't have any blemishes on them. And they, they were sacrificed and the blood was put on the altar. And we think, oh, what a terrible God that is to cause so much blood. But remember, all that blood and all those animals were a picture of what God was going to be willing to do in the future with his own son. That's why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The blood of the lambs didn't take away the sins of the world. They covered the sins of the world until the perfect Lamb of God came. And that perfect Lamb of God did take away the sins of the world, paid for the sins of the world, and gave the, the people of the world an opportunity to trust Christ. They still needed to believe. Remember what we said about the, 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 the serpent on the, on the pole? They had to look and live, and then they'd be, they'd be healed of their, of their poison. It's the same way. The price was paid. The ransom was paid. But God wants us to believe. Fifthly, he gives us wisdom and prudence. Verse 8 says, Wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom and prudence is spiritual knowledge 
and moral insight. God wants us to have spiritual knowledge. God gives us spiritual knowledge and moral insight. 1 Corinthians 2.13 says, Which things also we speak not of the wor words of man's wisdom, science, but which that which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Does science today compare spiritual things with spiritual? Or do they try to get the spiritual things out of the creation? They try to say the Big Bang Theory gave us what we have today. Carl Sagan says we are made of star stuff. God, Carl Sagan says evolution is a fact. Is evolution a fact? Is it a theory? No, it's not. It's not even a theory. Well, you know what it is? Baloney. <laughs> See what that is? That's how you say baloney in sign language. It's baloney. It's false. It's a lie from the devil. It's a way that the devil tries to use to keep to get God away from get God, get people away from God and not believing that God created the universe. God, can you imagine? When I get to heaven, I wonder if God's going to let me see the creation. Look back in time and see the four. Would I love to see, wouldn't you love to see that? Wouldn't you love to see the creation? How God created the universe? Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. All those things. Just with the just with the power of his voice, he created the world, the universe, the stars, the planets. And he, de he designed the human body. Remember I showed you about this? Look at that. Has man ever been able to make something that can do that? Do you have to think about it, or does it come automatically? I think of, Nancy was saying, think of Christie, all that piano and all those finger movements and the, the way it has to be done. God created that in her, gave her the ability to do that. Amen. So how does the Holy Ghost teach us comparing spiritual things with spiritual? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick, alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder the soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We have the word of God. This is the most precious book in the existence of mankind. Right now, it's, it's the most highly published book in the world still. That may not always be. There was a man called Voltaire. Voltaire was a French, uh, what's the word? Philosopher. Voltaire hated God. Voltaire hated the Bible. And just before he died, he said, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because it, it's, it, it's almost a joke. It's almost funny. Just before he died, Voltaire said, in the next 50 years, every Bible on the earth will be destroyed. And then he died. And then he left his house. And guess what they used his house for? They used his house for a clearing house and a... And a uh, place where Bibles are kept and distributed. It was, a di it was a distribution point for Bibles all over Europe and France. So Voltaire was not right. You can't stop this. This is God's word. And he, if Hebrew says it's quick, it's alive. This thing's alive. This book is alive. It gives us the words of life. 
I mean, it's not living in itself. It doesn't talk to me in a voice, but it talks to me in the letters that are in here, which are the words of God. Dividing asunder soul and spirit and joints and marrow and is a discerner or an understanding or an opening up of the thoughts and intents of the heart, of the heart and the mind and then the soul. <clears throat> if you have a problem, if you have a situation, no matter what happens in your life, you need to go somewhere to get an answer, it's right here. You can't find it anywhere else. You can't find it in philosophy. You can't find it in Google. You can't find it on Facebook. But you can find it here. And John 14, 25, and 26 says, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. This is Jesus talking to the apostles. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Did you ever come across a verse of Scripture and say, I'm not sure what that means. When that happens, do you pray to the Holy Spirit to give you enlightenment and tell you and show you what it means, show you where to go to get the answer, show you who maybe to speak to to get the answer? God promised that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to help us understand his word. Isn't that wonderful? He gives us wisdom and prudence. Number six, the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of God's will? Verses 9 and 10 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation, don't let that word get you mixed up. All it means is administration. That in the administration of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. The mystery of his will is that salvation is not just for the Jews. Salvation is also for the Gentiles. Romans 3, 11, 25 says, I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That's Jews. The Jews would say, we are God's people. The Gentiles aren't God's people. Gentiles can all go to hell. We are God's people. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Don't be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. How many times did Paul go into a city? First thing he did was go to the synagogues, the places where the Jews were, and preach to them, and they rejected it. They rejected the gospel. What did Paul say? Ah, henceforth, I shake the dust off my feet and go to the Gentiles. And when he went to the Gentiles, they were happy, weren't they? Acts 10.45 says, And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter. I said, Paul, I meant Peter. Well, Paul did that, said that too. Because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. Those that were with Peter... And this is, this is talking about when he went to where? To Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And, and, and they were shocked that, that Cornelius and his family could receive the Holy Spirit. 
And in Acts 11, uh, 18, it says, Then when they heard these things, this is Paul and all the things that he found out, and Peter when he came back and told them what happened back in Jerusalem. And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. The mystery of his will is that the Gentiles would be saved. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that the Gentiles receive Christ? Let me ask you a question. Are there any Jews in here? Are there any Gentiles in here? Are we all Gentiles? The Jews rejected Christ. The stumbling block. But the stumbling block became the head of the corner. The head of the corner of the church. And it's important to us that the gospel went to the Gentiles also because if it didn't, where would we be? Right? God loves Jews. God loves Gentiles. Now it's, the other, now it's almost on the other way. Now it's the Gentiles that are going to the Jews and trying to get them. That's, where, that's why August Rosado goes to Israel. The Jews have still rejected Jesus as, they, as the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. As a matter of fact, they have uh, their meal on um, the Passover. It's called Cedar. And they all sit down. These are, the, these are the, the, uh, the, the strong Jews. They sit down and have a meal of, of lamb and bitter herbs. And when the meal is over, the father of the family designates one of his sons to get up and go to the door and open it up and see if the if Messiah has come. And he opens the door and says, hasn't come yet, close the door. That's the end of the cedar. They still think that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And that's why August Rosado goes to Israel, to show them <laughs> that he came and his name is Jesus. Seventh, he also gives an inheritance. I don't have an inheritance. My father didn't leave me anything except love, right? Verse 11 says, In whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worked all things, according to the counsel of his will. An inheritance is, is the word. I have trouble with this word. An inheritance is irrevocable, irrevocable. I'll say it that way. It's easy. It means it can't be changed. Once it's on paper, it can't be changed. It goes through the courts and it can't be changed. It's unfailing. We have an inheritance with God that cannot be changed, will not be changed. First Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, a living hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, listen to what it says about the inheritance, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved for you in heaven for you. We have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. 
and it is incorruptible, undefiled, can't be changed, fadeth not away, will not wear out, reserved for us in heaven for you. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That's the inheritance. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That inheritance that we have is God himself. And it cannot be changed, it cannot be corrupted, it cannot fade away. It's reserved for us in heaven. And Jesus is waiting for us right now. And the only reason he's waiting is because he's given more and more people an opportunity to be saved. Eighthly, he seals our salvation. Our salvation is sealed. Verse 13 says, In whom also ye trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Amen. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. A seal in the Old Testament means a lot more than it does today. People, people seal, seal uh, agreements by a handshake. A hundred years ago, a handshake, a man was kept by his handshake. It was, you shook hands on something and meant you were going to do it. Today, a handshake means nothing. Today, you seal something on a piece of paper, it means nothing because they can break that seal. And they do it all the time. They lie and they steal and they cheat. But a seal in the Old Testament was a little bit different. As a matter of fact, it was a lot different. In Esther chapter 8, verse 8, it says, right, this is, this is uh, Ahasuerus talking to Esther in, for, for the Jews. He says, and write also for the Jews as it, it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. The Holy Spirit has sealed our salvation. We have like a seal on our heads. In the book of Revelation talks about uh, those that are saved are going are to be sealed. Not just the 666 of those that reject, but the, the believers are also going to be sealed. And that seal cannot be broken. The king of the world has sealed us by the Holy Spirit, and no man can change it. The devil can't change it. People can't change it. Science can't change it. You can't even change it. You can't take that seal away because it cannot be reversed. Our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing that our salvation is sealed by the Holy Spirit and not sealed by ourselves, not sealed by whether or not we obey God or not, not sealed by how we serve him. I'm not saying don't serve the Lord, but I'm saying service of the Lord and our faithfulness is not what seals us. The Holy Spirit seals us, and the Holy Spirit is God, and the Holy Spirit cannot be defeated, and the Holy Spirit cannot be reversed. It's like, a king, it's like the king's ring. Once that seal is on there, it can't be broken. Number nine, it gives us a security deposit. Do they still do um, 
what do they call that? Layaway. They still do layaway. When you do, when you have a layaway, you go to a store and you buy a whole bunch of stuff. And then you know, I can't pay for this right now. So you go to the layaway table and you take this to them and you give them a down payment. And you say, hold this for me and I'll make payments on it. And then when it's all paid off, I'll get it out. But that down payment is a security deposit. When you buy a house, you put a down payment down. We didn't have to do that, but we ended up having to buy uh, homeowner's insurance, which is just another thing for a down payment. But most people, when they buy a house, they put a security deposit down on that house. And that means that the realtor can't turn around and sell that house to somebody else because you put a deposit on that house. That's yours. And he can't sell it to anybody else. Suppose someone came along and said, I'll give you $100,000 more for that house than this person. He's going to have to say, sorry, it's a down payment. Down payment has been made. It's sealed. Now, maybe there's some dishonest realtors out there that may do that. But let me tell you, God won't do that. God is not going to ignore the down payment. Verse 14 says, the whole, speaking of the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest, the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, until everything is on this earth has been finished and the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. That redemption of the purchased possession, not talking about the redemption of our soul, but talking about the redemption of our body. And when we rise from the dead, when we are resurrected or when the rapture comes, that's the salvation that's spoken of here the salvation of our body, and we will get a new body, a glorified body, and we will never even have an inkling of sin again in our glorified body. We cannot sin. We are innocent. Our body has been redeemed, but it's not redeemed yet. Our soul is redeemed. Our salvation is, re is, is, is fixed. But uh, Paul talks about the earth groans and all the people on the earth groan waiting for the redemption of the body. Are you waiting for the redemption of your body? Are you getting tired of this old body that fails all the time and, I, and I, you do something and you ask God to forgive you and five minutes later you do it again and you ask God to forgive you and five minutes later you do it again and you ask God to forgive you and when you get to 390, or when you get to 490, God says, okay, that's 70 times 7. I'm not going to forgive you anymore, right? No. No. 7 million times 7. 7 trillion times 7. That doesn't mean it's okay to sin because you know you'll be forgiven. But the idea is looking at it from God's point of view. God's patience doesn't run out with his people. And his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136, I think it is. There's 20. I'm not sure which one it is. Maybe it's a little bit. Yeah, I'm not sure which psalm. It won't go there. But that psalm is a psalm of repeating. There's 26 verses in that psalm. In the end of every 20 of all those 20 verse, 26 verses, it says, "For thy mercy endureth forever." If you were here back when I was doing Psalm 119. We went to that psalm. I can't think of what it is now. And I said the first part of it, and the, the class said the second part of it. For thy mercy endureth forever. 
Thy mercy endureth forever. Thy mercy endureth forever. We can't hear that enough. God's mercy does not run out. God's mercy endureth forever. I can see my wife trying to, trying to find it. She's going to tell me which one it is. I'm surprised she didn't just shout it out. I think it's in the 130 area. <clears throat> but the important thing is that the Holy Spirit is our down, the down payment for our salvation. And no matter how many times we fail, God's mercy endures forever. And fifth and last, and in, and in closing, he gives us the power of prayer. Verses 15 and 16 says, Wherefore, or therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul prayed for all, did you find it? Which one is it? Ah, you like that. Psalm 136, thy mercy endureth forever. Prayer is a privilege, a privilege that most Christians do not do enough. We have the ability and the power, and I say power because it's not our power, but when we pray, Jesus is right there with us and he hears us. As a matter of fact, sometimes when, we, when we're in the middle of prayer, we don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit knows our hearts, and he looks at our hearts, and he knows what we're feeling, and he takes what's in our hearts and brings it to the Father and tells the Father what's in our hearts. And the reason he does that is because he understands our weakness. In Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus was on this earth, was he God? Yes. Was he a man? Yes. Did he get thirsty? Did he get hungry? Did he get tired? Did he get frustrated? Did he sigh? Did, was he surrounded by unbelief? Did it break his heart? Can you just see him, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets? How often would I have, ta I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, how often would I have, would I have gathered thee under, like, a, like a, a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, and he would not. Ooh, he would not. Ooh, what happened to predestination? And he would not. He says, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a chicken gathers her little chicks under her wings and ye would not. We have a high priest that, that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities for he was at all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Did the devil tempt Jesus? Yep. Did he tempt him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life? Yes, he did. But Jesus never sinned. He says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find help in the, in, in, uh, find grace in the, and help to help in the, in the time of need. God understands our infirmities. God understands our weaknesses. Jesus understands our weaknesses because he felt them in his human body. 
yet without sin. Let me ask you a question. Careful how you answer this. Is it possible for us to have victory over sin? Yes, it's possible. Do we have victory over sin? No. Why? Because we're not trusting in the power that God has given us. We yield to this guy over here, the flesh, the sin nature, instead of yielding to this guy, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't force us to do right. The Holy Spirit encourages us to do right. The Holy Spirit shows us how to do right. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do right. But we yield to this guy in here, the sin nature. And when we do, it's, it causes God's sorrow. I dread to think about that. Have I ever caused God sorrow? Has God ever been sad when he sees things that I have done, things that I do, my failures, my sin? Does it cause him sorrow? Yes, it does. That's why the Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. I said this before. Whatever we say, whatever we do, wherever we go, we're bringing the Holy Spirit with us and causing him to endure the things that we are enduring. And it causes him grief. And, and Paul said, grieve not the Holy Spirit. Don't do the things that are going to grieve God. Do we have the power to not grieve the Holy Spirit? Yes, we do. It's right in here. It's right in his power. But we fail because we have the sin nature. And we do what we want to do. And you look back at the history of Israel and what did they do? They saw things that we can't see. They saw the, tw the ten plagues in, in Egypt. They saw God separate the Red Sea so they could walk over on dry land. They saw God send manna from heaven. They saw God send quail flying this high off the ground so they could catch them. Thousands, tens of thousands of them. They said there were so many quails that the ground was covered with them. They saw God give them water from a rock. They saw God give them victory in Canaan. They saw God give them the riches that, that they got when Solomon was king. They saw all those things. And yet they still worship Baal and Ashtoreth and all those false gods. Didn't take them long to do that. Right when Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, what were the children of Israel doing? making a, a golden calf. And poor Aaron, they told him to do it, and he did it. He used a graven tool, and he made a nice golden calf. And when Moses came down and looked at his brother, and he was so mad at his brother, and he said, what did you do? And Aaron said, well, uh, uh, they told me to collect all their gold, and I threw it in the fire, and, and out came this calf. <laughs> Is that what happened? No. no. It didn't come out. He made it. He engraved it. He yielded to the will of the people because he was afraid of the people more than he was afraid of God. Let's not be more afraid of the people than we are afraid of God. God has given us ten things, and there's more than ten. If you look at, if you look at the rest, you'll see a few more things that God, a few more blessings that God has given to us in the book of Ephesians. 
You know that song, Fill My Cup, Lord? He fills our cup. And he gives us everything we need. But all we have to do is take it and use it for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for the great blessings and wonderful blessings that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to use these blessings and use them to reach out to the lost. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know what we're going to do for a...